You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. The French Revolution set Europe ablaze. It was an age of enlightenment and progress, but also of tyranny and oppression. It was an age of glory and an age of tragedy. One man stood above it all. This was the Age of Napoleon. I'm Everett Rummage, host of the Age of Napoleon podcast. Join me as I examine the life and times of one of the most fascinating and enigmatic characters in modern history. Look for the Age of Napoleon wherever you find your podcasts. Hello, and thank you for joining the American Revolution. This week, episode 220, Assault on Charleston. We return now to the Southern Theater that we last left in episode 213. In that episode, I discussed the Battle of Briar Creek, which took place in March of 1779. It was a British victory, but failed to leave the British in control of the Georgia backcountry. The Continentals took control of Augusta, and the British remained hemmed in around Savannah. After the capture of Savannah in late 1778, Colonel Archibald Campbell received appointment as military governor of the colony, even while General Augustine Prevost took control of the military forces at Savannah. Campbell then returned to London, leaving his lieutenant governor and General Prevost's brother, Colonel Mark Prevost, as the acting governor of the colony of Georgia. Campbell returned to Britain a hero and received a promotion to major general. He also got married and soon received an appointment as governor of Jamaica. Back in Georgia, though, the situation was becoming dire. The British strategy in Georgia had been to take the colony with a relatively small force of a few thousand regulars, then use that as a foothold to build an army of loyalists from the Georgia and Carolina backcountry, and to use that army to invade South Carolina. British strategists also hoped that Georgia would provide a source of food for armies fighting on the islands in the West Indies. By capturing only a small area around Savannah, those plans never really came to fruition. There were potential loyalists living in the backcountry who might be persuaded to join an army, but after the British abandoned Augusta, many of these men had no faith that the British army could hold on to territory or that they would not cut and run if the Continentals gave them too much of a fight. These men knew the consequences of joining up with the British if the British did not remain in control. They would be branded traitors, have their property confiscated, become exiles, or even be executed. As a result, the number of local volunteers was minimal. Most men in the area who had not joined with the Patriots simply kept their heads down and tried to remain out of the contest until they had more confidence on which side was going to win. Following the Battle of Briar Creek, the British garrison of nearly 4,000 soldiers remained in and around Savannah, with a couple of outposts within a day's march of the city. The Americans had initially concentrated the bulk of their forces at Perrysburg, a small town on the South Carolina side of the Savannah River, about 20 miles upriver from British-occupied Savannah. Following Briar Creek, the Continentals and the militia under General Benjamin Lincoln's command totaled less than 2,000 men. 
about half of what the British had. Lincoln had expected militia from the southern states to rally to his support, especially now that they were being threatened with the clear and present danger of a British offensive from Savannah. The Patriot militia from Georgia and the Carolinas turned out in disappointingly small numbers. In April, a frustrated Lincoln wrote to the Continental Congress requesting to be relieved of his command. He complained that he did not have sufficient forces to go on the offensive and that his New England constitution was not doing well in the southern climate. He had come down with a fever and was still suffering pain from the wounds that he had received at Saratoga more than a year earlier. Despite his request, General Lincoln remained in command. Even with his diminished force, the continental position at Perrysburg kept the British bottled up. They could not send foraging parties or recruiting parties into the backcountry without the risk of being attacked and captured. If they sent out a force large enough to fight off a major attack, they would be forced to leave the garrison at Savannah so depleted that they could not defend themselves against an all-out attack there. The inability to recruit meant that the British did not have the manpower to launch the new offensive that they wanted to do. The inability to forage meant that they were still reliant on food and supplies shipped to them from elsewhere. This frustrated plans in London, where they hoped British-controlled Georgia would be a net exporter of food by this time, not requiring imports of food. After an American privateer captured a supply ship bound for Georgia, the garrison even had to go on short rations and was in danger of potentially starving. So the standoff seemed to be favoring the Americans. At the same time, Lincoln once again called on the governors of North and South Carolina to send reinforcements. By late April, the Continentals were in better shape. South Carolina militia general Andrew Williamson had reoccupied Augusta and had fought and dispersed a group of Cherokee and Creek warriors who were supporting the British. More militia joined Lincoln and Perrysburg. It's hard to find a good source with reliable numbers, but it appears that the combined force of Continentals and militia at Perrysburg were well more than the nearly 4,000 British soldiers at Savannah. With those reinforcements, General Lincoln felt pressure to go on the offensive. He still did not want to attack Savannah directly. The British there had artillery and defensive fortifications that would make a direct assault unlikely to succeed. Instead, after holding a council of war on April 19th, Lincoln opted to take the bulk of his force to Augusta. This would ensure the British would not receive aid from the Georgia backcountry and might convince locals that the Americans were in control of most of the state. The Patriot Legislature of Georgia planned to reconvene in Augusta at the beginning of May. Deploying a large military force would be a show of strength against any British attack and would establish Patriot control of most of Georgia. By moving in force into Upper Georgia, Lincoln left behind only a few hundred soldiers in Perrysburg, mostly to keep an eye on the river fords. General William Moultrie stayed behind to maintain the command at Perrysburg, while Lincoln took the main army into Georgia, with hopes of perhaps even pushing the British further back into Savannah. In Savannah, British General Prevost observed the deployment. 
he had no intention of trying to retake Augusta. His army had abandoned that town a couple of months prior because it put at risk any outpost in the area with a larger continental army still at Perrysburg. The Perrysburg location made good tactical sense because the Americans would move into Georgia easily if the British tried to push out of Savannah, but it could also engage any British forces that tried to move into South Carolina. After the Americans moved the bulk of their force up around Augusta, the British saw an opportunity to move into South Carolina. General Prevost still had not received any reinforcements since he had arrived in Savannah months earlier, but he had several thousand regulars at his command. He could use those forces to challenge the Americans. Sure, the Americans had greater numbers, but they were mostly militia, whom the British believed would not usually stand in battle. On April 30th, Prevost deployed a force of about 2,000 regulars across the river into South Carolina, hoping to challenge the smaller force at Perrysburg and also to do some foraging, hopefully gathering some cattle and grain from the South Carolina countryside to feed his garrison. Prevost figured his move would probably force Lincoln to return from Augusta back to Perrysburg. The British might get another opportunity to attack or capture some Americans, as they had at Briar Creek, or they would at least force the bulk of the American army back out of Georgia and into a position where they would be able to defend South Carolina. Now, for the British, I guess this was a risky move. The British were sending more than half of their soldiers out of Savannah at a time when the Americans looked like they were planning an offensive against Savannah by marching down from Augusta. Prevost was gambling that the Americans would rush back into South Carolina and give up on their offensive in Georgia. In Perrysburg, General Moultrie saw that he was going to be quickly overwhelmed by the British assault and called on General Lincoln to send reinforcements quickly. Lincoln believed that the British action was a feint and only sent about 300 men to assist Moultrie. There was some skirmishing but the British were slow in advancing because heavy rains had swollen the river, making it difficult for the British to get their artillery and horses across. Moultrie used that time to abandon Perrysburg and to try to get into a position between the British Army and Charleston. Lincoln, however, continued to see the British action as a feint to force him to retreat from Georgia. He kept the bulk of his Continentals around Augusta and called on the South Carolina militia to turn out and defend their own state. South Carolina militia General Stephen Bull sent word to Moultrie that he would soon be arriving with 600 men. That, however, did not happen. South Carolina farmers were panicked at the idea of British marching through their farms. To add to their panic was the fact that about 100 Creek and Cherokee warriors were with the British. Word got out that they were ravaging farms, killing women and children. South Carolina farmers refused to turn out for the militia call and instead worked to secure their farms or move their families to safety. One officer who did turn out to defend the state was Lieutenant Colonel John Lawrence of Charleston. Lawrence had recently returned to South Carolina after serving as George Washington's aide-de-camp. Although still a Continental officer, he had left active duty to take a seat in the South Carolina legislature. But when he received word that the British had moved into South Carolina, he rode out to offer his services to General Moultrie. 
Lawrence received orders to guard one of the river fords that the British would need to reach Charleston. Moultrie was trying to organize defense of the Telephony River. He left a guard of about a hundred militia at the Kusawachi River, where the British would arrive first. On May 3rd, he deployed Lawrence and another 250 men to reinforce the defense of the fort at the Telephony. Lawrence decided that the best defense was a good offense. He took a combined force of 350 men, crossed the river, and advanced to attack the approaching British. The British soldiers saw the American approach and immediately deployed on the high ground, taking positions in several houses on the tops of hills. Now, despite the British having the better position, Lawrence led his men into a charge, braving artillery and musket fire in an attempt to dislodge the British. The Americans began to take casualties, including Colonel Lawrence, who had a horse shot out from under him, and who also took a bullet in the arm. Lawrence left the field to receive medical attention, leaving orders to Captain Thomas Shulbrick to continue the engagement and then pull back. Shulbrick saw no benefit in remaining engaged against the enemy that had a better position and who was also likely to receive reinforcements soon. As soon as Lawrence left, Shubrick ordered an immediate retreat. His actions turned out to be the right move. His withdrawal prevented the British from circling around behind the Americans and cutting off their retreat. Lawrence was aware of this and rode back to the main lines at Telephony and reported that his men were in retreat. In response, General Moultrie abandoned his attempts to set up a defense at the Telephony River, he burned the bridge, and withdrew his army back toward Charleston. With the Patriot forces providing little opposition, the British simply stepped up their foraging and began marching toward Charleston. Lawrence's attack near the Kusawachi River was the only significant defense they encountered. They kept on the heels of the retreating Americans, who had to march through the night several times to keep ahead of the British. General Prevost was moving as fast as he could toward Charleston. By May 9th, Moultrie's retreating army had reached Charleston. Along the way, much of the militia army that had turned out deserted the army. The men sought to return to their plantations and protect their families rather than remain with the army. Moultrie commanded a force of 600, which was mostly still inexperienced militia. There were still a few other armies that might assist. Governor Rutledge was assembling another militia army at Orangeburg. Moultrie also still hoped that General Lincoln would come to his assistance. General Pulaski also arrived in town with his legion, offering his services. And Moultrie raised a few hundred men in Charleston, but hoped to have at least a few days to arrange his defenses before the British arrived. The British, however, were not going to sit around. On May 10th, the day after Moultrie arrived in Charleston, the British captured a key ferry just a few miles from town. On May 11th, the British had crossed and were prepared to assault Charleston. Moultrie deployed his militia to meet the invaders. The reality, though, was that the British never intended to capture Charleston. This had been a foraging raid, primarily designed to collect some food and to force General Lincoln's Continentals to abandon Georgia and protect South Carolina. When General Lincoln refused to take the bait, the British pretty much had an open path to Charleston. But having arrived at the city with only 2,000 men, General Prevost did not have the artillery and entrenching tools to mount a proper assault. 
he was more than 100 miles from his home base at Savannah and still had the risk that General Lincoln might march up behind him with several thousand soldiers and cut him off from his base. The British engaged with Pulaski's legion just outside of Charleston. An encounter with British dragoons backed up by light infantry and a few companies of Loyalist volunteers from New York resulted in most of the infantry in Pulaski's legion being slaughtered on the field. The two sides met on a horse racing field just outside of town. Colonel Chevalier de Roatz, a Prussian officer in the command of Pulaski's infantry, advanced on the British only to be cut down and killed. Most of his men were also slaughtered by saber-wielding dragoons. Pulaski and most of his cavalry only escaped by galloping off the field. Their pursuers only turned back after they reached the American artillery at the city gates. Over the next few days, American defenses grew. Governor Rutledge's militia army arrived from Orangeburg. Colonel Harris arrived with a contingent of Continental Light Infantry. General Bull finally arrived with a reduced militia force of a few hundred. In total, the Americans had assembled a force of about 3,000 defenders. Moultrie, however, still suffered an inability to create a unified command. Governor Rutledge insisted on giving his own orders to the militia. The state's Privy Council also tried to issue its own orders to the militia. The result was that coordination of troops was nearly impossible. On the night of May 11th, Rutledge ordered Major Benjamin Huger, the brother of General Isaac Huger, to lead a company to fill in a hole in the American defenses. Nervous American troops nearby heard the movement in the dark and opened fire. Huger and 12 of his men were killed in the friendly fire incident. After that, Moultrie confronted Rutledge about the deaths and forced him to agree to give him full command over the military forces around Charleston. In exchange, Moultrie agreed to leave civilian matters, such as parleys or discussions of surrenders, to the civil authorities. The next day, May 12th, Governor Rutledge came to General Moultrie to say that he wanted to parley with the British to discuss terms of surrender. Having agreed leaving that authority with the governor the previous evening, Moultrie had to agree to send a messenger to ask for terms. The messenger delivered the request to Colonel Mark Prevost, the general's brother and the commander of the British advance force. Prevost sensed the Americans were ready to fold and told them they could surrender unconditionally within the next four hours or that he would attack. When the Americans received the British response, they debated their options. The military leaders, General Moultrie, General Pulaski, and Colonel Lawrence, wanted to fight. They estimated that the British had about 4,000 soldiers and the Americans had over 3,000 defenders. Given the advantages of their entrenched defenses, they believed they could hold off any attack until Lincoln's relief force arrived. Governor Rutledge and the Privy Council disagreed. They believed the British had between 7,000 and 8,000 men against a defensive force of around 2,500. If a surrender would protect the city and its property, then that was the best course of action. In reality, the British had less than 1,000 soldiers prepared to attack, with another maybe 1,200 in reserve back at the ferry. The British knew that they were not going to be able to take the city by force, but were trying to bluff the Americans into surrender. Governor Rutledge and the majority of his Privy Council 
opted to propose a neutrality option. They would agree that South Carolina would become neutral in the war for independence, waiting to see whether the Americans won the war or not. They would essentially drop out of the war and leave the fighting between the British and the other states to the north. In exchange, the British would call off their siege of Charleston. The offer was, to say the least, controversial. The military leaders thought it was ridiculous to give up fighting for independence in exchange for ending an attack that they could probably defend against anyway. A minority of the Privy Council and the legislature also opposed the idea. Governor Rutledge, however, was unswayed and demanded that General Moultrie deliver the offer. Moultrie, while opposed, felt obliged to obey the orders of the civilian government. He asked Colonel Lawrence to deliver the message. Lawrence refused. Eventually, someone carried the message to the British. They received Colonel Prevost's response the following morning. He was not authorized to make political deals, but he would still accept the army's surrender as prisoners of war. Prevost knew that he could not capture the city militarily, but decided to push his bluff to see if he could force a surrender. It almost worked. Governor Rutledge was still prepared to surrender. General Moultrie, however, was not willing to turn over his army and make his men prisoners of war without even a fight. Moultrie informed Prevost that he rejected the offer to surrender and prepared for an assault. For the rest of the day, May 12th, the Americans prepared for an attack. The tension grew even worse after four men caught deserting their posts were ordered hanged on the city gates. Their bodies were left hanging there all day as a warning to others. The following morning, May 13th, the Americans awoke to find themselves facing an empty field. Colonel Prevost, his bluff called, knew he had no further options. He had also received word that General Lincoln was on his way with a relief force. Prevost had never intended to take Charleston when he started the offensive and had no intention of pushing his luck. The British withdrew back to Savannah with the forage they needed and called it a success. Because there was never a full battle, casualties for the campaign were rather light, mostly a few dozen on the American side. As later events would prove, this was only the opening salvo in the British effort to take Charleston. Next week, though, British raids into the Chesapeake will threaten Virginia. This episode is supported by the food delivery service, Factor. It's spring now, and we all want to spend more time outdoors enjoying life, not the kitchen. Factor ensures you have fresh, never-frozen, chef-crafted, dietitian approved meals that you can prepare in just two minutes. Each week, you get a menu of 35 meal options, as well as 60 add-ons, including breakfasts, on-the-go lunches, snacks, and beverages. You can customize your orders to get as much or as little as you want each week, and can pause or make changes to your orders at any time. Factor is less expensive than takeout, and every meal is dietitian approved to be nutritious and delicious. It's the perfect solution if you're looking for fast, upscale options done easily. Now, they even have a special deal for fans of the American Revolution podcast. Head to factormeals.com ARP50 and use that code ARP50 to get 50% off your first box 
plus 20% off your next box. That's code ARP50 at factormeals.com ARP50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next box while your subscription is active. Hey, thanks for joining the American Revolution Podcast After Show. Thanks to my Patreon supporters in the Alexander Hamilton Club, Trey Nance, George Davis, and George Hunter. Thanks also to Robert Morris Circle supporter, Knox Press. This month, Knox Press releases Revolutionary Surgeons, a book that looks at medical doctors and the role they played in the Revolutionary War. Go to knoxpress.com for more details. I also want to welcome Ryan Archambault and Eddie Diaz, our two newest Privy Council members on Patreon. You guys will receive your flag magnets later this month, as will everyone who gives at least $10 a month on Patreon. They get a different revolutionary flag magnet each month. It's just my way of saying thank you for those who have really stepped up in a big way to support this podcast. I also want to extend thanks to Mary Ellen Wynn for a one-time gift via PayPal. I really appreciate that as well. Now this week, Charleston, South Carolina, once again finds itself threatened by the British. The decision by South Carolina leaders to cut and run from the Union was a controversial one that would divide the state for years. Governor Rutledge did not seem to suffer too much political fallout from his decision and continued to remain active in politics. Now, Rutledge had actually already resigned the governorship in 1778. That time, he had vetoed the new constitution, which he thought was too democratic, and the legislature overruled him, and he resigned from office. But by early 1779, he had returned to office. Despite his offer to the British to just bail out of the war and secede from the Union with the rest of the states, Rutledge remained in office and remained fairly popular among voters, apparently, until 1780 when he was forced out by term limits. Even after that, Rutledge would go on to serve in the Continental Congress and would later serve on the Supreme Court, including a brief stint as Chief Justice. The British, of course, were not done with Charleston in 1779, as we will see when we get to 1780. In that effort, Rutledge would be more supportive of a defense of the city, not that it helped. If you want to read more generally about South Carolina in the American Revolution, you may want to take a look at this week's book recommendation. It's called Battleground of Freedom, South Carolina in the Revolution, by Nat and Sam Hilborn. This is a relatively short book, at just over 200 pages, and it has lots of maps and illustrations in it. It focuses on the military history of the war in South Carolina. If that region is of interest to you, then this is a good resource. The authors are a husband and wife team who published this book back in 1970. You can buy the book, and of course I have links to it on Amazon, or you can just look at it online at archive.org. As always, I will include links to both recommendations on my podcast site, my blog site, and my website. My online recommendation is an article from the Journal of the American Revolution called John Rutledge, Governor of South Carolina, 1779, by Eric Sterner. It's a closer look at Rutledge during this crucial year 
and his advocacy to sell out his state to neutrality in 1779. This article is one of a series of articles that Stirner has written for the journal about the political career of John Rutledge. If you search for John Rutledge on the journal's website, you'll find all of them. If you're just looking for this article, of course, my direct link, that once again, is on my blog, my podcast site, and my website, www.amrevpodcast.com. My question this week asks, what would happen if we didn't win the American Revolution? Well, first of all, by we, I assume you mean the Patriots, since the Patriots won the Revolution. But this podcast, of course, enjoys listeners from Britain, Canada, and around the world. So I don't want to imply that we are all Americans. As an aside, I should note that some people have suggested that I betray a bias by calling the supporters of independence patriots, as if loyalists and British folks were not being patriotic in their own way. At its root, the term patriot simply means someone who loves their country. However, during the American Revolution, the term patriot was generally understood by both sides as someone who was fighting against the king. The term had come to mean someone who loved their country so much that they would take the risk of fighting against an established authority if they thought they were an illegitimate ruler. For example, after Oliver Cromwell established the Protectorate during the English Civil War and deposed Charles I, his opponents were considered patriots when they tried to reinstall the king's rightful successor, King Charles II. Similarly, members of Parliament who opposed the Catholic King James II during the Glorious Revolution were considered patriots for restoring a Protestant government that was protective of English liberties. During the American Revolution, the term patriot took on a pejorative meaning in Britain for many as a fanatic who deemed the current government somehow illegitimate. Therefore, as I said, at that time, both the Americans and the British referred to the rebels as patriots. Anyway, to your main question. If the patriots had lost the war, the colonies would have reverted to being British colonies again. Beyond that, it's hard to say and probably would depend on exactly when and under what conditions the British finally won the war. Some in Britain would have wanted to punish the colonies for rising up in rebellion. There probably would have been at least a few treason trials and executions. There probably would have been a great many land seizures of leading patriots. And many in Britain probably wanted to remove many of the rights of self-government from colonial charters, as they had already done with Massachusetts. On the other hand, there were many British leaders who would have pushed to implement reforms to make the colonists happy. Once the British army had established its dominance through military victory, it could also prove itself merciful and generous by developing some better power-sharing arrangements, while at the same time pulling the colonies a little closer to Britain. The idea of appearing generous and magnanimous was really a political necessity because Britain simply could not afford to have the colonies falling into rebellion every generation or two, as Ireland and Scotland seemed to do. When you rule over a people only by means of fear and terror, that is likely going to have to be the case. It also seems inevitable that, at some point, the colonies would have broken with the mother country anyway. 
America was simply growing too large and too economically powerful to remain part of the empire. The British could not engage in any real equitable power sharing unless they were willing to become a minority within their own empire. And I really don't see that happening. Assuming there was not a future armed rebellion over some other issue, such as perhaps slavery, Britain probably would have moved peacefully to a Commonwealth system with America, as it did with places like Canada and Australia many decades later. Those countries still nominally fall under the rule of the British monarch, but of course they operate as independent nations. In such a situation, the colonies of North America probably would not have been spun off as a united single entity. Britain did in fact unite the colonies in Canada into a single entity, but it did that mostly because it needed to have Canada stand against the already large and independent U.S. British leaders probably would have been happier to see the colonies broken into multiple independent governments. Some larger states like New York or Virginia might have existed as their own nations. Smaller states with regional ties to one another, like, say, New England, might have been bound together into a single regional state. But keeping those groups divided would help British leaders to exert control, even in a commonwealth, by serving as an arbiter in disputes between the separate states. In the end, the result is that the separate countries probably would have ended up fighting with each other, mostly over issues of Western expansion and borders, perhaps other issues, and the U.S. never would have developed into a united superpower. It would remain semi-divided, hopefully at least working together on some issues, maybe something like what Europe looks like today. There are, of course, so many variables in predicting an alternate history that other scenarios could certainly be equally valid. This is just my guess on the way things might have gone. If you have a question you would like me to answer, please email me or reach out on social media. I'm on Twitter, Facebook, and now I even have my own Quora space. You can find links to all these on my podcast page or my blog or my website. Please reach out to me and let's continue a conversation about the American Revolution. Well, that's all for this week. I hope you will join me again next week for another American Revolution podcast. What does Sputnik have to do with student loans? How did a set of trembling hands end the Soviet Union? How did inflation kill moon bases? And how did a former president decide to run for a second non-consecutive term? These are among the topics we deal with on the My History Can Beat Up Your Politics podcast. We tell stories of history that relate to today's news events. Give a listen. My History Can Beat Up Your Politics, wherever you get podcasts.